1: guest host, Will Cho. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Australian Startup Series Interviews. Our guest today is Evan Thornley. It's so good to have you on the show today, Evan. Thank you.
0: Thanks very much, Will. It's good to be here.
1: To start us off, could you just briefly introduce yourself and what you're currently up to these days?
0: I'm Evan Thornley. I'm the uh, Executive Chair of Longview, which is a startup in the residential property investment space, um, building a funds management platform for residential property. So that's my 14th starter. Wow, 14. <laughs> Some of them have worked. Most of them have worked. A few haven't.
1: I'm sure there's a lot to unpack here um, during our interview, but I want to take the audience right back to the beginning. Evan, would you say that you've always been an entrepreneur? Take us back to even university days.
0: Yes, Actually, uh, I, I did my first startup business uh, when I was a full-time law student at Melbourne Uni, and uh, I was very involved in student politics. I was president of the student union at the time, and then one of the co-founders of the National Union of Students. This is like, we're talking Stone Age here, okay, so 1987. <laughs> um, and uh, and I thought that the student movement should have its own independent income, Uh, so that the political fights that always seem to sink the student movement wouldn't be quite so impactful. So I set up the business arm for the student movement and we set up a chain of uh, computer stores on on campus and a whole bunch of other things. So, yeah, so I ended up building a business with about a million million dollars a year of turnover, which was a decent amount in those days, and about nine full-time staff. Wow. So, yeah, that was age 22. What
1: drew you in? Was it just, I guess, problem opportunity identification?
0: uh yeah well you don't know what you don't know right so you see a problem and something needs to be done about it so you get about doing it you know look I grew up in a single parent family on on welfare and um, mum struggled a fair bit to sort of be on top of things so I pretty much had to bring myself up so I was pretty much used to the idea that if you needed if something needed to be done you you needed to do it yourself because no one else was going to do it for you so I saw things that I thought needed to be done and so set about doing them
1: and what led to Looksmart, you know, Looksmart is wildly famous. It's one of the most classic uh, stories in Australian entrepreneurship. You know, one of our first NASDAQ listed companies.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think the first sort of classic startup that got got to a NASDAQ listing, certainly. And uh, look, uh, you know, I I uh, I was a McKinsey consultant at the time, so I was you know a, a bright young thing traveling the world, trying to solve the world's biggest business problems with. Uh, you know, with a very high-end management consulting firm. And, you know, McKinsey, you're very good at understanding the economics of a business and and quickly getting across the operations of businesses in a lot of different uh, industries. So uh, taking those analytical skills, I looked at what was happening in the very nascent internet. You know, this is, you know, this is mosaic days, right? (laughs) And, and it seemed to me that in a world of infinite information, uh, search was going to be the power position. And, that, and all this is obvious now, but it wasn't in 1995. <laughs> and that the business model was likely to be direct marketing hmm. and tied to what people were searching for. And so that's where i guess you know as a mckinsey consultant you've got to figure out where the money is and where it isn't that's where i thought the money would be in the internet yeah and so i thought if i went and did that and and it worked out well then i might be able to do what i really wanted to do which was to own newspapers um and uh, sort of be a left-wing rupert murdoch um so that was the initial motivation <laughs> and uh Six weeks after my twins were born, I left McKinsey and uh, started Looksmart in uh, yeah 1995. So, ancient history.
1: That's absolutely amazing. There's there's a couple of things that I want to unpack. There. Um, the first one is you, you mentioned that you applied your analytical skills learned from management consulting, and you saw that search was going to be a bit, the big thing, um, and obviously advertising revenue was how it was all going to piece together. Yeah. Although I'm cognizant that there is like a thousand kilometres between, you know, seeing that and not seeing that. How did you know?
0: Well, it's an interesting question. Uh, I don't want to sound cocky, but I guess over the years I've come to realise that I seem to be one of those people who's pretty good at um, following the bouncing ball and seeing where it's going to go. What's the old Wayne Gretzky line? Don't skate to where the puck is, skate to where the puck is going to be. Hmm. I'm not sure what leads you to sort of have that trajectory view of the world rather than a static view of the world, but it's just always been the natural way of seeing things to me. And so, look, you always go back to first principles. Like I said, in a world of infinite information, search would have to be the power position, right? Like, and, and, and then, well, what's the revenue model going to be? I don't think it's going to be subscriptions, uh, it's probably going to be advertising. Um, and, and, you know, that that evolved, right? So, and, and I always thought it was going to be more direct marketing than advertising per se, sort of more direct marketing than brand advertising um, because it was so targeted. And, you know, it took a few years for us as an industry to really make that happen in terms of search targeted marketing and, you know, keyword driven marketing. But that was a correct kind of analysis. I I was doing some work with a direct marketing company at the time, so I probably, to be fair, had that hammer in my hand at some point. But I knew all of the challenges in traditional direct marketing and direct mail and similar. And it was sort of pretty obvious that the interactive world was going to be a much, much better, faster, more malleable, more targetable mechanism for direct marketing than something like direct mail so you could sort of see that coming so i guess you your brain connects a few dots from different universes together and you form a picture and that that i guess is what happened
1: yeah it wasn't something like a black and white formula that you followed to the t it's just something that you saw a little bit of connection from everywhere and then that's how you knew
0: Yeah, but look, I think that's that's where most insight comes from, right? It's the basis of intelligence. Really, is the ability to connect seemingly unconnected data, Mm. you know, and look for patterns and follow trajectories. Yeah, those are all the sort of generic mental processes. I think you go through.
1: Yeah. So the other thing that I wanted to ask you, you mentioned like nascent internet, um, and and that really piques my interest. What was it like creating your own startup back in nineteen ninety five? like in terms of support structures?
0: Well, I mean, let's be clear about where we were, right? I mean, Mosaic arrived, and that was the first HTML browser. So prior to that, those of us who were on the internet were on proprietary platforms that were all, you know, Unix-based platforms, so the original, you know, CompuServe and stuff like that, where, you know, you were typing Unix command lines into things and trying to find stuff, right? So, you know, I, I remember clear as a bell, I'd read all about Mosaic, but I hadn't actually seen it. And a friend of mine in the New York office of McKinsey said, "Oh, I've got," and then it was renamed Netscape, right? So, uh, <laughs> I've got I've got Netscape on my browser. Uh, I'm sorry, I've got Netscape on. My, I've got Netscape on my computer. Do you want to see it? And I said, "Oh, yeah, I've heard all about this thing. I really want to see it." And he was a British guy. His name was Richard Blue, and and you know he fires up his Netscape 1.0 browser, and you know five seconds later, we're searching for apartments to rent in London, you know, point and click. And I just, the light just went on and I said, wow, this is going to change the world. Like the usability of that point and click interface, you know, HTML interface of the first browser compared to the sort of really clunky, very technically complex environment that online services had been to that date, just, you know, it was a blinding flash for me. And 6 weeks later i left mckinsey and started the business so yeah so i mean when you say what was i mean you know there was no there was no internet ecosystem there, were, there weren't any in, in, internet companies i mean netscape was the first internet company because they were the first browser so hmm. um, you know then you got the first of the directories and search engines starting with yahoo and gradually that evolved out of the us and and obviously there was there was nothing in australia so there, there was no ecosystem
1: could you tell me a little bit on your perspective or what was it like at the height of the boom? Yes. Like in terms of, you know, there were crazy valuations everywhere. Everyone was just getting into tech stock. As as long as it had dot-com in it, it would be, you know, it would raise millions.
0: Yeah. Look, I, I think I referred to Silicon Valley at the time as the wealthiest insane asylum on earth. <laughs> you, you know, Uh, you know, there was just money sloshing around in the streets. Uh, I I thought it was nuts at the time, and and it was. (laughs) But, you know, the valuations seemed insane, but the great companies, as it turns out, were very good value buying at that point, Mm. right? So the valuations weren't insane for the winning companies. They were actually undervalued. I think what it took a long time, and it still takes a long time. You still see these fashion trends in the capital markets and in venture capital in particular. It took a long time for people to become more discerning about which companies were actually going to be the winners, which ones had real business models, which ones had credible management teams, you know, which ones had a definable path to victory and some sort of, you know, sustainable competitive advantage. And so it it was an undiscerning market that threw money at everything. And then when the crash happened in 2000, when the tide went out, most of the rubbish went out with it and a smaller number of us survived. And then the truly great companies, you know, went on the you know the Amazons and um, and and Ebays, and and then shortly thereafter, Google and others, you know, went on to become immensely valuable, and and their their valuations then looked trivial compared to where they are now. So,
1: yeah, what was it like running LookSmart in the wake of the bust?
0: Oh, look, you know, tough. I mean, we. January the 8th, 2000, I think it was. We sacked 162 people in one day. Wow. That wasn't the happiest day of my life. But as I said to the team at the time, you know, we either lose 162 jobs now or we lose 600 jobs a few months from now. So (laughs) those are our choices. Um, And what was astounding to me was that some of the bigger and best financed and allegedly best run companies didn't take any corrective action in light of what had happened. And so, you know, some of companies you've never heard of now, like Excite at Home or Webvan, you know, I think in both cases they had $1.25 billion of capital in the bank, but they were burning it at a quarter of a billion. A quarter, so they had, you know, five quarters of burn left, right? So you would have thought they would have pulled the aircraft up and gone over the mountain, but no, they just flew at full speed straight into it. So, sure enough, five quarters later, they both went broke. So, um, while it was fairly obvious, I think, to any sensible person that the world had changed uh, and that you needed to, you know, survive a nuclear winter, um, it was remarkable to me that some people. People who should have known better just sort of were in complete denial. Um, they just wanted the party to continue and and was sort of unable to comprehend that the world that we had known had changed.
1: Hmm. What was the decision that led to you um, leaving Look Smart and then your brief stint in politics?
0: No. <laughs> Yeah, look. I guess I'd, I'd done what I'd set out to do, and the company was based in the US, and it was really a, a family decision. We wanted our children to grow up in Australia, and it wasn't practical to stay on as CEO of a you know Nasdaq listed tech company in California uh, from Australia. Certainly not in those days. So, and, and to be honest, you know, I'd made more money than I ever imagined I ever would, and I still had a burning desire to. Um, fix the Australian Labor Party, which in retrospect was um, one of my more foolhardy uh, uh, aspirations.
1: Hmm. This next question, I'm cognizant that it could be quite difficult for lack of a better
0: term.
1: Um, so feel free to skip it or, or, or tell me that I'm out of line for asking this.
0: Oh, look, you'll have to do better than that. <laughs> I used to say in my all hands meetings, you know, there's a, there's a bottle of wine here for the person who asks the first question. And there's another bottle of wine here for the person who asks the most difficult question. <laughs> you know, it's uh, the difficult questions are the good ones. So fire away.
1: Yeah. Look smart is a search engine. It could have been Google. What went wrong?
0: Oh, look, so many things that I, you know, I think uh, as a first-time entrepreneur, there's many things that you, you, you would have liked to learn from your subsequent life. But look, I, I think the first thing I would say is, you know, we started out looking at the world as it was in 1995, and there was a split between keyword search and category-based directories. And Yahoo was the leading category-based directory, and things like AltaVista were the lead keyword search engines. And we first set out to build a much better category directory than Yahoo, which we succeeded in doing, but it's also clear that as the volume of information grew, category directory became unwieldy and the keyword search was the only practical way of running things. So,
1: Hmm.
0: you know, so I think we were playing down the wrong fairway there. Uh, We realised that and therefore morphed into looking at the revenue streams and how it and, and became one of the pioneers of you know what's effectively google adwords as a revenue model right so keyword targeted search terms so us and a company called goto.com were the sort of the two pioneers of that and then as google came along they adopted that revenue model and and it seems to have worked out okay so you know so we had to pivot at that point to make the best of a situation where it was clear we weren't going to be the leading the leading player in search, so we had to sort of pioneer a different approach to the revenue. And then, you know, we went, we didn't have the venture to compete with the big brand building players, so we had to syndicate our product through other people and white-label our product to others. And so we built a syndication-driven business. Hmm. So, you know, I, I think we made the right responses to where we were, but, you know, the entire world of search, I'll get a bit technical with you for a minute, was driven by search algorithms that were driven by proximity and frequency of the search terms in a document. And Google had the profound insight that it was more about the relevance of the document rather than proximity and frequency and and that using a, an analogy from academic citation analysis, the real way you find out which r- documents are relevant is by which other documents link to them. Hmm. And so they built a link, link topology ranking algorithm and, and that of course was a revolution. You know it was a technical revolution in search. and they quite rightly um, deserved to win at that point. And you, you know some of us did try to buy them, but <laughs> <laughs> sadly, that wasn't the case. Thanks for for
1: sharing that insight. I'm interested to hear. So you've pretty much been in the whole startup ecosystem for the better part of the last two decades. And I'd love to get your insight on how that has changed over the last 20 years. Um, has it been what you expected it to be,
0: more or less? Uh, yeah, well, I think you're right in saying two decades because the first five or six years we were there, there was no ecosystem. So, <laughs> <laughs> so let's start Let's start the clock at 2000. Um, we, we were already a public company by then. Oh, look, I mean, you know, in Australia in particular, there has, you know, one has developed, you know, I mean, there were there was really nothing. There was no, even the basic stuff of who are the lawyers who know how to, you know, knock up a, a stock option plan, you know, where are the venture firms? You know, there was, there was one venture capital firm in Australia in those days, uh, which was a small outfit called Allen and Buckridge. Hmm. You know, there were a couple of lawyers or accountants who'd had some experience of stuff in the US. You know, there were no incubators. There, there were no serious venture firms. There was there was none of the, there was nothing here. You know, the the, the, the entire ecosystem has been created in, in twenty years, and and it's fantastic to see. You know, it's absolutely fantastic to see. And and at the same time, obviously, the technology advanced to the point where, you know, your capacity to launch something online, some consumer application that's going to be exciting and interesting, you know, with relatively off the shelf platform configuration is, you know, it just means the amount of time and the amount of money to actually launch something has, you know, has dropped by an order of magnitude. And so anyone with an idea can get out there and have a crack uh, and quickly, you know, test and learn and see if they've got something or not. Whereas, you know, we had to raise, you know, some millions of dollars just to be able to build something hmm. uh, and hope that it would uh, it, it would work with no, no precedence and no nothing to compare to you know i mean you look at your average sort of new SaaS platform play in australia and you know you know what all the metrics are that you need to hit you know which 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 players are doing well and badly you've got a, a whole ecosystem from you know way precede angel through to uh you know post public financing you've got you know lawyers accountants headhunters you know it, it's an ecosystem mm. you know it's still relatively small even compared to somewhere like israel but uh, let alone silicon valley but uh, but it's a functioning ecosystem, and of course, it's birthed some, you know, some amazing companies. You know, the Canvas and Atlassian's and Afterpay's and others, uh, and you know, the previous generation, the, the, you know, Seek in particular, I think, stand out. Uh, so, yeah, it's it's a functioning ecosystem, and and all of that's happened in a you know a relatively short period of time, as you say, in twenty years, all all of that's come to pass, and now somebody who is onto something can, you know, have a reasonably clear run through to exploring that and turning it into uh, into a serious business.
1: Yeah. Can you pinpoint a specific year which it all started to you know kickstart and and maybe some catalysts?
0: Oh look always the biggest catalyst is success, right? And and so I'd like to think, you know, when we took the company public, when we took Look Smart public in in August ninety nine, that was really the first nasdaq listing of an australian tech company just before the crash in march 2000 you know we had a market cap of 14 billion dollars uh, that was real money in those days i think we were number six on the australian stock exchange by market value wow um, obviously that drew a lot of interest from a lot of people <laughs> and you know the next generation came through after us that you know the marketplace plays real estate car sales seek and so then, once those were successful, and you know, Seek's the story I know best, just because Paul was originally my, my lawyer when we started LookSmart. <laughs> we were mates from Melbourne Uni Law School, and he was at Arnold Block Liebler, and, uh, uh, and he did all the early legal work for LookSmart. And then one day he came in and said, Oh, Evan, I'm sorry, I'm leaving the firm. I said, oh, what are you doing? He said, I'm going to go off and be an internet entrepreneur. I said, oh, fantastic. What are you going to do? And he pulled out – I still have the I still have the evidence here um, – he pulled out a business plan for a thing called The Spot, which is, in fact, what became Seek. And I looked at it and I said, whew, taking on Fairfax and the Rivers of Gold in classifieds, mate. It's a big market, but they're going to be tough to beat. And, you know, history tells the tale. They absolutely cleaned Fairfax's clocks and built a, a magnificent company. So I think, you know, I mean, LookSmart was a bit of an anomaly for people, but it certainly got people's attention. And then when, you know, material success was then replicated by, as I say, the 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 seeks and REAs and car sales, you know, then entrepreneurs had, had role models and believed that it was possible to do this stuff from Australia. Certainly, you know, looksmart listing on nasdaq i think really helped people believe that we could play globally and the success of the marketplaces in australia in particular and you know the money people aren't far behind mm. <laughs> so you know uh, you know our early stage investors made hundred baggers on the deal right so you know people notice that <laughs> and um, and many others want to follow you know and the, the the lawyers and 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 you know associated investment bankers and others you know, build experience, and can then give that experience quicker and easier and cheaper to the next generation. So I think that was the first big turning point: was seeing the early successes. You know, then I do think that just the evolution of technology and the the lowering cost of entry uh, has really helped. Yeah, and then you you get to a certain critical mass where there's institutional knowledge. You know, the, the way people, you know, everybody in the system now can understand what, you know, what's a minimum viable product, when can you establish product market fit, you, you know, all of the key, you know, all your key metrics, particularly in SaaS businesses, you know, these become known teachable things. And then you can, you know, you have a sort of mass education that happens in the community and then you have a flourishing of new players and 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 a sifting out of the success from that and uh, i mean i th- i think the biggest change was really that you know entrepreneurs could see that it was possible hmm. and once you believe it's possible especially when you're you're young and crazy then you you have a swing
1: yeah i love that it's in essence shining a spotlight to past founders because that paved the way for the next once the spotlight started to you know fixate on startups it well, just well, all... well
0: and and look the other thing that happens and this is critically important is people that work in those early success stories then know what a successful company looked like mm. and and off go off and found their own and that you know that's happened for decades in silicon valley you, you know most people don't found their first company out of nowhere most people who are good founders actually started in other companies and and you know we saw you know we, we saw a lot of that, you know. Uh, Obviously, you know, Martin Hosking was, you know, Martin was, I think, employee number three at, at, at Looksmart and really a core part of the founding team and, you know, then went on with with Redbubble and, and his role in Aconex and other things. And, you know, similarly, people came out of SEEK and came out of REA. And um, so you really then get that second generation that flows uh, from that. And then, of course, you get the founders, um, you know, who've made and the early venture investors who've made serious money. Uh, in those early startups are then looking for the next generation of of founders and the next generation of companies to invest in. yeah and, and it's often with their own people coming through that they start that. I mean, we used to back in you know, a bunch of our own stuff. I always encourage people if they had a startup, you know we'd hate to lose them uh, from the company, but you know we wanted to we wanted to help them succeed, so we'd often back them in.
1: yeah, absolutely. the flywheel so they say, it, right?
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: Do you think that we do have a PayPal mafia in Australia, and and if so, what company would you say is the PayPal that led to the flywheel?
0: Well, oh, that's a, that's an interesting question. I haven't thought about it in single company terms because there was so few of us, right? Like everyone knew everybody, mm. <laughs> so um, I'm not sure it narrowed to a single company per se. You know, I mean, obviously a lot of the sort of uh, digital marketing folks did come out of Looksmart because um, we we pioneered that space. Mm you know, all the marketplace spaces um, have now, well, <laughs> famous last words have now been taken up. I'm sure that they haven't, but, you know, a lot of people learned about marketplace businesses from the three early, um, the three amigos in terms of uh, Seek, REA and, and car sales. I'm not sure that, uh, I'd be interested in other people may have a better vantage point on that question. It's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting question. I can't think of a single company that sort of had that type of impact per se, but I may be missing something really obvious.
1: No, I I understand your point and that's fair enough. Um, The next thing that I wanted to ask is a, a theme that has popped up a couple of times in our conversation so far is... The idea of lowering cost to entry. Mm. Um, you mentioned a couple of minutes ago that you know back then it costed millions to test something that had no precedence, and you'd have to be crazy to to go off and do something like that. Yeah. What would you say are the catalysts that led to this lowering cost of entry? A couple of other guests have mentioned like AWS startups.
0: Yeah, I mean, look, obviously AWS is part of that. That's certainly part of it. But but just just the whole. I mean, just dev generally, right? <laughs> I remember uh, I left McKinsey the same week as uh, my then boss at McKinsey left, and and he said, uh, oh, "I've got bad news; I'm leaving the firm." And I said, "Oh, I'm, uh, that's funny; I'm I'm leaving the firm as well." I said, "What are you going to do?" He said, "I'm going to go and build this internet directory." And I said, "That's funny; so am I." Uh, <laughs> his name was Charles Connor. His internet directory was was a local a local business directory, and it ended up being a thing called City Search, which ultimately got bought by barry diller and his people by for a couple of billion dollars but um but one of the funny things charles said to me when we caught up a few years later and this this will date me but he said hmm java great for raising money bad for building websites <laughs> and you know everyone was doing their own bespoke development uh, in those days and uh that was necessarily time consuming and expensive whereas you know you can really plug and play a lot of modular stuff these days and configure it and get get yourself a working mvp to test a value proposition with customers mm. and and obviously aws and and everything associated makes that yeah you've then got shared infrastructure so that's that's quicker and easier and cheaper
1: yeah i'd love to turn to the ecosystem today mm. what would you say that there are things that we could still be doing better
0: look I mean, I'm a bit remote from the mainstream of it. I think I've been, funnily enough, still just going off and doing my own things. Um, and so I've got observations. And, and, I mean, firstly, you know, overwhelmingly, I'm just incredibly excited and proud of where the country's got to and that we have got a viable startup system. And, you know, in at minimum, Sydney, Melbourne, and Brisbane, and 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 great companies come from other places as well. Sending a couple of great companies from Adelaide and elsewhere, but but I would also say, particularly the venture scene, I think is a bit monochromatic. You know, if you've got a global SaaS platform play, then the venture the venture folks are all over you, and if you've got the right metrics, they're they're going to be all over it, and and that's fantastic, and it's natural, particularly because Australia is a small domestic market, so global players are important, and you know. SaaS models with recurring revenue streams are obviously attractive. But I think that, you know, there's a lot of other ways that great businesses start and a lot of other business models that can work. But, you know, they're innovative, so you don't have precedent for them, so they're harder to judge. So in a weird way, I think there's a little bit of risk aversion there, or perhaps put another way, there's enough great SaaS platform businesses that why would you go back things that it were different to that. So, you know, after pay didn't come out of the venture scene here, right? Because that was a different model. So, you know, I I think that the Australian venture scene does some things really, really well, but perhaps misses out on a broader range of things that would require some first principles analysis to try and determine whether those models were attractive rather than a sort of... More formulaic recitation of metrics, which unquestionably are correct and work, uh, you know, in a particular business model.
1: Hmm. How about on the flip side of that? What would you say we do better than, say, other geographies?
0: Oh, that's a good question. Um, look, the only three geographies, honestly, that I really know anything about is Silicon Valley, Israel, and Australia. Hmm. So that's pretty tough competition to say, what do we do better than Israel or (laughs) Silicon Valley, you know? Um, um, That's that's pretty rarefied air. So, well, well, I'd say, uh, look, uh, let's compare with, say, Israel. And, like, you know, Israel is at least an order of magnitude more startup intensive than we are, possibly two orders of magnitude, right? I mean, I think we've put five companies on the NASDAQ, four or five in our 20-something year history. One department of one university in Israel put more tech companies on the Nasdaq in one year than our country has in a lifetime. Right, um, the computer science department at the Technion in in uh, in Haifa did five in one year. So you know, while what we are doing is is incredibly exciting and compared to where we were is incredibly uh, heartening. Let's not kid ourselves that we're at the world's leading edge mm. but the flip side I would say is generally Australia, Israeli startups tend to sell out early and not go on and build great companies they tend to sell the technology early take take the flip and move on um, whereas I think you know Australia has got a bunch of great companies that have really gone on with it. You know, Atlassian has really gone on with it. You know, and built a great global company. Canva is well on the way to building a great global company. You know, so I think that I think that we have uh, Australians have been have been willing to go all the way in a way that is less common, for example, in Israel, which is otherwise a, a you know much much more intensive and vibrant startup scene than we have. Mm. So I think that that's um, that's something we've certainly done well.
1: Do you have any unpopular opinions, Evan, something that you believe is true, others aren't on the same page as you?
0: Oh, well, I, I think I would say uh, what I said about the sort of somewhat one-dimensional nature of the Australian venture scene <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, is it certainly would be an unpopular view and, and in, in both the unpopular sense, people don't like it, but also unpopular probably in the sense that that may not be widely shared. Mm. I mean, I'm I'm always doing completely new stuff that no one else is doing. So sort of by definition, it is that, right? So, I mean, mean, just to talk about what I'm working on at the moment, which nobody else is working on to my knowledge, seriously, which just astonishes me, is, you know, residential property is the biggest asset class in the country, right? Not by a little bit. You know, the Australian Stock Exchange and every company on it is $3.3 trillion and Australian residential property is $10 trillion right wow and yet you know if you want to buy domestic equities or trade domestic equities or analyze or do anything with domestic equities as an asset class there is a whole you know a whole industry of stockbrokers and analysts and financiers and everything else in domestic equities and you look at australian residential property as an asset class and there is literally nothing Mm. there is literally nothing there commercial property which is one ninth the size Uh, is a whole industry with commercial REITs and a whole bunch of other things. And so, you know, I'd call that a bit of an oversight. You know, there's more funds in crypto, mate, than there are in residential property. And exciting as the crypto stuff undoubtedly is, my unpopular view would be that residential property is somewhat more important (laughs) and uh, a lot less competitive. So, and, and there's more crushing social needs, quite frankly. You know, the entire Australian housing ecosystem is a disaster. It's the worst country in the developed world to be a tenant. Uh, It's one of the hardest countries in the world to save for a deposit to buy a home. And there is absolutely no one that's there to help anybody either to buy their own home or to be, you know, a successful just garden variety mum and dad property investor. So I don't know. That looks like the biggest of blue oceans I've ever seen. Hmm. And in that sense, it's, to use your phrase, an unpopular view. It must be because basically no one else is doing it. There's... We, we're about to launch our first shared equity uh, offering to help folks get the deposit they need to buy a home. There's a few other terrific startups doing a similar thing. So so I guess in that particular corner, there's a little bit of action, but that's it. So, you know, hidden in plain sight. Um, so I guess I've always been a bit contrarian. So while everyone I know is going to build global SaaS platforms, we're going to focus on, um, on the biggest play in the country by a factor of three that's hidden in plain sight, which is residential property and fixing the problems that exist in the Australian housing landscape for for tenants and potential purchasers and for investors.
1: Yeah. This is a little bit of an off-tangent question, but mm. how do you make sure that you've struck gold or you're maybe in something that no one else is in, in that and maybe you're wrong?
0: that makes sense. Oh, 100%. You worry about it every day, right? I mean, every contrarian who has any sense worries every day. What am I seeing that other people aren't seeing? Mm. And anyone who's ever done anything new, if they've got any humility left in them, um, does that. So you just keep testing that hypothesis Mm. and you keep asking And you keep welcoming hard questions and contrary views and testing what you're working on against that and against the facts. So I I think in this particular case, you know, I've talked to just about anyone I can think of in the space over the last five years that we've been working on this, and I'm now pretty comfortable That we're onto something (laughs) um and and actually it's very validating you know we we started working on shared equity as a critical you know affordability tool for for young people to buy homes about a year and a half ago it's been a huge project and uh, and lo and behold as we were doing it two or three other tech startups have come out people are starting to get funded following that model there's a bunch of government schemes around and and soon it'll be flavor of the month and so you know it's always validating to have competition actually You know, I remember saying to a a fellow I knew in Silicon Valley who who said to me, you know, we're two years ahead of the competition. And I said to him, well, if you're one year ahead of the competition uh, in Silicon Valley, mate, you're a genius. If you're two years ahead of the market, the market might be trying to tell you something. (laughs) But ultimately, by definition, you have to be willing to pursue something that you think has underlying fundamentals that support your view and that the conventional thinking is is not based in underlying fundamentals, so it's usually based in some misunderstanding or some commonly held but ultimately outdated or wrong worldviews, or some other form of um, sort of mass psychological distraction. And you keep testing those underlying fundamentals. You know, it was like I was talking about look smart and search. You you always have to go back to fundamentals. Hmm. rather than fashion trends so if you're worried about what other people think and you're wanting to be follow the crowd then you know you will never do anything fundamentally new and interesting yeah that doesn't mean that doing something that no one else is doing makes you smart it makes you it should make you extremely cautious and wary and asking yourself the question you just asked me every day and I guess we've been trying to do that and so far you know we're as comfortable as we can be that we're onto something and and as more competition and and you know the more we, we've taken the covers off this thing in the last few months and um, a lot of people seem to be sort of deeply intrigued by why we see the world differently i'm encouraged by that but um hmm. you know the market will the market will speak in time and we'll be right or we'll be wrong and if we're wrong hopefully we'll see that first and change
1: yeah that's a good segue into the next question, which is reflecting on you know, your, your experience, your wins and your mistakes. Mm. What would you tell a new entrepreneur to help them increase their chance of success? Is it that be willing to have a crack and test and validate, right?
0: Oh, look, all of that is, is absolutely true. And I still go back to, you know, team is everything. Getting the right founding team and building that team as a team that has the right diversity of experience and mutual respect and has all the bases covered between those first, you know, three to five people is hugely, hugely important. Mm. So yes, the idea is obviously important and testing the idea and validating that there are real customers who will pay you money for that is, is is absolutely essential. But often they won't with your early ideas, but if you've got a good team, that team will, will you know, take up that data and take up that challenge and, and keep, pivoting until they've found something so you know I'll back a team over an idea all day long I think my favorite you know I used to uh probably spend more time with young founders I guess there were were less mentors around a decade or so ago so I used to have people every second day come and ask me for help and I'd always try and make time for them Um, thankfully there are many others that take up that burden now and I'm I'm back (laughs) doing my own stuff but but the second thing that I always got people to focus on which was never top of mind for any of them and this is not so much a key to success, it's a key to avoiding failure, is that governance matters. Boards and board structures and board personnel really matters. A good board really improves the likelihood that you can take something from good to great, but a bad board will almost always kill you. Mm. And it's just the last thing anyone thinks about in the early stages of a company. But very quickly the structure of that board and who you put on it and how that board works becomes important. And it inevitably becomes most important in in two critical situations, either when something goes wrong or when things go staggeringly right. Right. Um, And dysfunctional boards in either of those situations can kill you. You know, I've seen, you know, the, the number one reason I've seen startups fail is they run out of runway, but a very close second is problems at the governance level, either, disputes between founders, disputes between founders and venture, disputes between venture and venture. Um, and uh, all of those human elements and the, the structure and 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 who's ultimately legally got the power to determine the direction of a company, that stuff really matters. And it's probably the, the, the one sort of piece of advice I've given almost every entrepreneur I've met. Uh, that they've almost never gone, yet, yet, no, we've thought a lot about that and this is what we've done and this is how it works. And um, they've always gone, oh, well, I hadn't really thought about that. And yet the number who come to me and say, oh, I've got this, we've got this nightmare on my board and, you know, or or between us founders or, you know, um, and and they think they're the first person who's ever had a problem, you know, in the power structure of the company who gets to call the shots. And yet it happens, you know, all the time. So that's probably the one Uh, sage piece of advice I'd give everyone. It's not a sexy topic, but it really matters. Mm.
1: So, Evan, as you know, what we're trying to do on this podcast is to document as historically and accurately as possible the history of our ecosystem just so that we can look to the future. And we're aiming to reach all corners from founders, investors, academics and policymakers. Mm. Is there anything that we haven't discussed today that's always top of mind for you?
0: Oh, Look, when you say policymakers, here's the thing. And as someone who's been very active in political life in a range of different forms, as well as in startup life, Mm. one of the things I'd say about Australia as a nation and Australia as a polity is that almost every problem we have in this country the dialogue about what to do about it usually starts with somebody saying the government ought to do this or that mm. and and that includes you know how do we build a better startup ecosystem and how do we fix all these things and and i would say broadly speaking that government is spectacularly irrelevant to 99% of this stuff and that we would all profit by wasting less breath on debating what governments ought to do to make us into an innovative economy. Uh, it, it's a peculiarly Australian obsession, uh, which certainly doesn't exist, for example, in, in the US uh, or for that matter in Israel. Although I might say if any government's actually done a good job of, of, of helping formulate uh, an ecosystem, it probably is the Israeli government. But but Australian governments will never do anything in that form anyway, regardless of who's in power. So... So I just think it is a massive distraction, mm. and and all the people that have spent years trying to get governments to put money into this and money into that, and I mean, yes, there are a few things that obviously really matter. You know, it's very important that you have a tax system that doesn't uh, doesn't create cash tax liabilities for non cash rewards in terms of stock options, for example. You know, yeah. clearly that stuff's got to got to be right, but so you know that that would be the one thing i would say and you know the tech council and folks doing important things and and no doubt will be representing our community on important issues and it's great that people do that and are of service there but i i just wouldn't get too ambitious about what you're going to get government to change its position on and even if you did whether it would have any material impact on the outcome
1: Why is that? On on both tangents, why is this a uniquely Australian obsession? And secondly, it seems like, yeah, why should government sort of stay out?
0: Uh, Well, because government is a slow moving bureaucracy that's, you know, it's an organizational model that's a Weberian bureaucracy from the 1930s. It's 100 years out of date. (laughs) So, why would you expect something that's working on a model that's 100 years out of date to be relevant to? Stuff that's meant to be at the cutting edge. Mm. I mean, it's just, it's completely antithetical. It's an organizational form that is the complete antithesis of a startup in every possible way, uh, structurally, culturally, uh, and in every other way. So it's not because people working in government are bad people or politicians are crooks or, you know, this party or that party is doing the wrong thing. There's very decent people in public service and you know, doing the long march through the institutions to try and make the country better. And I commend it, and many of them are friends of mine. But the idea that that organizational model can do anything useful for something that's moving as fast as we're moving is just laughable. Yeah. I, I, I'm sort of confused as to why people think it would be otherwise. But because our answer to every other problem in this country is the government order, I guess when we get to challenges for startups, we start out with the government order. You know, I'm trying to think of anything material that governments have done in the last 20 years that have really changed the answer, and I'm I'm struggling.
1: How about the National Innovation and in Science Agenda introduced by the Turnbull government? Would you say that moved the needle somewhat?
0: <sighs> look, you know, I'm not close to the specifics and the maybe um, worthy things that have come out of it. So I don't, I, and I'm not trying to poo-poo these things. So <laughs> look, I don't know specifically at that level. I mean, look, I, I recall there was a government scheme, and this is, you know, 10,000 years ago, okay, in in LookSmart days, uh, and they invested in a whole lot of startups. And one of the, the what they did was the uh, private equity firm that put early money into LookSmart was sort of, you know, a bit worried about the risk profile. So they laid some of that risk off and took some of the government money in exchange for a portion of their shares. Mm. And as it happens of the, I don't know, 30, 40, 50 companies the government put money into, the only one that made anything was that share in LookSmart. Fortunately, it was a 100 baggers. So it actually paid for the entire thing and the and, and the scheme came out in front. And I remember being at a dinner in New York when Prime Minister Howard was there and he sort of pulled me aside and said, well, thanks to you guys, this thing's not been a complete train wreck. And so, you know, even at that time, I was sort of like, going, you know, this is probably not the most useful space for governments to be trying to intervene. Uh, So look, look, I thought some of the policy settings in the Turnbull agenda were good, and hopefully they've made differences at the margins. And again, the last thing I want to do is criticise the good people who are working hard to try and make sure government policy is as good as it can be. Mm. That's important work, and, and it's great that people are willing to to, to put that effort in and, and, and make those changes. I'm just saying if you calibrate that as one of the levers of change for our ecosystem, I wouldn't calibrate it very highly.
1: Yeah. The last question, Evan, and I know that we've mentioned quite a lot of um, people and organizations already, is who are the, the heroes um, in the ecosystem that you know or in your personal journey that you'd like to shout out?
0: Oh, look, they're just mates of mine, so, you know, uh, know, look, Bassett, you know, brother Bassett has been remarkable, right, because I'm talking about Paul, but, you know, I'm a huge admirer of Andrews as well, Um, but, you know, Paul's done it twice, right, with he and Andrew and Matt, you know, built Seek into a, a truly great company. You know, a wonderful culture. It's still a wonderful organization. I did a startup a while back, which unfortunately didn't make it, but which Seek backed, and I've never worked with a better strategic partner. They were just fantastic, and and it was a real credit to them that that company, which is now large and successful, still has such a fabulous culture. But you know, Paul not only was obviously central to that magnificent success, but then has gone on to really lead in the venture world through Squarepeg and. So you know, I think to do that twice is um, is astonishing and a great credit to him. You know, I think what Nicky Skevac's done and the way they built Blackbird is, you know, is fantastic. The way that the the venture scene has developed, you know, and the 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 Blackbird and Airtree and Square Peg guys, and uh, you know, Danny Gilligan's a good mate of mine at, at Reinventure, who's one of the people I probably rate the highest that I've ever worked with, and. So you know they built a real a real venture community here that's had extraordinary success, and they've had extraordinary success because they've helped other entrepreneurs become in- incredibly successful. So uh, that that's the stuff that matters, not 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 what governments do. Mm. You know, so I, th- I think all of those people uh, are, are heroes. You know, look, I don't know much about Canva, but um, you know that that founding team. Um, have done an incredible job and it's really just such a great global platform uh, and obviously the Atlassian guys. And, and you know, you talk about, uh, again, I've sort of poo-pooed government. You know, you want action on climate change. Here's Mike Cannon-Brooks from Atlassian, you know, shutting down coal-fired power stations by buying the bastards, right? Like that's, <laughs> that's heroic stuff that should get a shout out for sure. So it's exciting to see people who take their success in the business and continued success. I mean, what a great company. And then, you know, take some responsibility to try and really shape the nation and the world on things that matter and, and nothing matters more than climate change. So, so look, I, I'm, I'm sure all of those are fairly familiar uh, heroics. And I don't, I said they're all mates, obviously a number of those people are not people I personally know. I'm obviously incredibly proud of Martin Hosking and, uh, you know, what he did coming out of Look Smart and I think learnt from a lot of our mistakes you know, has done a great job with Redbubble and and, and it was, I think, an important part of the total team, you know, that Lee and, and the guys at Aconix, um, you know, have done really well. So, you know, there's serial entrepreneurship um, that uh, at, at the highest level, you, you know, part of at least three, um, you know, unicorn successes. So you've got to give a big shout out to Martin for that. Um, yeah, th- those would be the ones at the top of my mind, but I, I know there's... Uh, there's there's so many other great companies and great founders out there and 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 great people, you know. Look, I'll, I'll I'll give a shout out completely separate to this, but again, this is why I like to think people to think more broadly. I came up with a crazy idea of buying ABC Childcare and turning it into a social venture, and I'm I'm very proud of having done so. But the person who really did the work on that was Michael Trail, uh, who founded Social Ventures Australia, and he really did the the real work that turned that idea into what is now Good Start, which is. You know, far and away the biggest social venture in the country, the biggest early childhood educator in the world, uh, as a non, you know, as a as a for purpose venture. Um, so that's the sort of thing and entrepreneurship that I think should be celebrated. And I think Michael's an absolute hero mm. for the work he's done there. And you know, that's that's making a difference in in literally tens and tens of thousands of young developing children's minds um, at the time that's most important—the year zero to six. So. You know, it's uh, entrepreneurship matters more broadly than just who's built the next great tech global SaaS platform, um, worthy and exciting as those also are.
1: Hmm. Evan, it's been so good having you on the show today. Thank you so much for your time.
0: No, thank you. Well, thanks for your interest. And I'm, I'm really excited you guys are doing the work now to. Um, to get a proper history and and hopefully uh, for the purpose you've done it, which is to hopefully we can all learn from it and, uh, and set an even better future coming out of it. So uh, good on you for doing the work, you and Adam, thank you
1: where could the audience go if they wanted to learn more and connect with you
0: oh uh, look one of the lessons i learned was I, I thought i was so good after my first success that i tried to do two or three things at once and failed miserably at all of them so um i, I was uh, humbled back into the idea that maybe i should just do one thing at a time and see if i can at least make that work so um so i'm all in on my current deal which is longview uh which is you know residential property is a long game um so longview.com.au uh you can find me uh there evan.thorneley at longview.com.au and um always happy to talk and, and if i can be helpful to uh to founders or others that uh, that think that they they can profit from avoiding the mistakes that i've already made i'll be happy to share them